Thank you, Jamel and Nancy. And if we'll come back then to the Old Testament book of Zechariah, we want to see once again, if you haven't come to love and fall in love with this Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been singing about tonight, then talk to us, one of us, after you've missed something. <laughs> well, I've maybe miscommunicated something because he is so lovely. We can't put it in words. And those of us who know him, and know what He's delivered us from, and know what He delivered us to. Uh, there, there's such a great promise ahead. And that's one of the things we see here. Our Lord is faithful to His promises. Unlike people, He's faithful to His promises. We all struggle with faithfulness and loyalty, but not our Lord. He is unchangeable. He changeth not. And we've seen here that, that the Old Testament people of God, the people of Israel, had the great privilege of being stewards of the Holy Scriptures. Paul talks about that in Romans 9. You and I are stewards of the Holy Scriptures now. And so, lest we get too critical of them and their failure, we haven't done so good in the church age either. We struggle just as much. But they had that great promise and that great statement the Lord makes in, in Jeremiah 22. O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Still what he says today, doesn't he? Oh, earth, people of the earth, listen, hear the word of the Lord. Well, Zechariah, as we said, his name, Zechariah, he, he, his name means Yahweh remembers the covenant-keeping God, loyal, steadfast love. His chesed, that's what it means, that he remembers. So we've seen that the book begins in verses 1 through 6 with this Call to repentance, which is characteristic, as we've said, of every one of the 17 prophetic books. The Lord is calling people back, back to Him, which indicates that they've gotten away from Him. And, and of course, that's been true all through the history of humankind. We've gotten away from God. And maybe there's someone here tonight that, that maybe you thought you knew God. You thought you were in a relationship with the Lord. And, but, but you find out if you examine your heart that, that, you're, that it's based on, on just straw. It's just based on hay. It's not based on anything real. It's not based on an, a personal relationship with Him. Well, we offer that to you tonight. The Bible offers that to you. The Word of God, the Spirit of God offers that. You can walk out of that door and know that you have eternal life. You don't need to wonder anymore. You don't need to be working on some sort of ceremony or ritual you're relying on or anything else you might have done because He has done it. That's what gives us that have the joy. Those of us that were singing this song, we can sing, All that thrills my soul is Jesus. Why? Because He took that burden off my shoulders of trying to carry about my sin and justify myself and save myself. No more. And if you can't sing with joy and enthusiasm, and beloved, we need to be smiling while we're singing that song and all of the songs we sing to them. I'm training myself to do that because I've come from this old British idea, you know, that you're stalwart and you, you don't express emotion and all of that. And, and we need to, I need to go back to my more of my Irish Roots that the Irish don't mind showing emotion publicly. But, but yeah, I mean, when we think about who we're singing to and what we're singing about, eternal deliverance. We deserve condemnation. Every one of us in this room deserved. I didn't hear any amens to that, but I hope you agree with me. We all deserve condemnation. And he has interposed himself. Well, he's going to do that right here in this first vision. I'm going to give us an example of it right here. And the visions begin on, on the 24th day of the 11th month, verse 7 of chapter 1 of Zechariah. And down through chapter 6, there will be eight night visions. All eight of them came in one night. What a night that must have been. An unforgettable night for Brother Zechariah, who was in the, he was a priest and a prophet. He came from a priestly family. So he was in the, the official role of intercession in, in all of the exercises and teaching that the priesthood did. But here he has the opportunity to proclaim as a prophet as well. Ezekiel was in a similar kind of situation. Jeremiah is also. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shabbat, 
We, we understand this to be February 15th, 519 B.C. We can be that specific now. You go back beyond 1,000 B.C., it's hard to be very specific, especially after 2,000 B.C. But when you get now, we're getting closer to the time frame of the modern era or semi-modern era, the, the Roman Empire. And we can be we understand when this was, which is the month Shabbat in the second year of Darius, which is consistent with what he said. 519 B.C. They've been back in the land now from 539 to 519. 20 years. Temple still not finished. And so Zechariah and Haggai, his contemporary, were urging the people to stay at the work. Haggai says, you live in your paneled houses. You're doing fine. But the, 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 the house of the Lord stands in ruins. There's, there's a disconnect here. You've got your priorities wrong. And, and he urges them to stay at the work. Well, Zechariah does too. Zechariah will talk about the day that they were living in was the day of small things. God wasn't doing the visibly great works that he did in the time frame of, the, say, the United Kingdom under King David or under King Solomon, where the, the Jewish empire was the greatest empire this world has ever seen. You won't read about that in your history books. They'll talk about the Babylonian empire and they'll talk about the Persian empire. But the, the empire under Solomon, the Bible is clear about it. He was the wealthiest that's ever lived and the wisest king that's ever lived. It was a tremendous work of God, but now they live in the day of small things. Beloved, we live in the day of small things. The number of people that are professing to be interested even in the Bible is amazingly small. We talk about biblical illiteracy in in America, in the USA, where there's a Bible in every hotel room. Thanks to the Gideons. And yet there's biblical illiteracy. How can this be that people don't? Well, there's a lack of appreciation. They don't believe this book is the word of God. They believe it's archaic. It's just old literature. And that's what our young people are being taught. And many of them are believing that junk. And it's all a bunch of lies from the devil. See, I encourage you. The word of God says this. All I encourage you to do, taste and see. Don't take my word for it. Take a Bible in a language that you enjoy and can read and taste and read for yourself and ask God to communicate to your spirit through the word of God. That's all I ask you to do. And watch and see what happens. (laughs) A miracle will take place, I assure you. We get testimonies of that all over this room. We could spend the rest of this night doing that. Maybe we should. Each person telling how the Lord did that. But on the 24th day, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. And it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow, and behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and white. And I said, My Lord, what are these? Aren't you glad he asked? But this is typical of what we call the apocalyptic genre or style of literature in the Bible. We find as we study the word of God, there are some eight or nine different styles of literature in the Bible. Does that surprise you that God wouldn't confine himself to one style of literature? Human beings write in all different kinds of styles. Where did they get the idea? God gave them the idea. God is the author of fantastic literature, and it's here. But the apocalyptic genre is peculiar in certain ways. It it has certain characteristics that we see. And it occurs here in Zechariah. It occurs in Daniel. It occurs in portions of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and the book of Revelation. And in each of those cases, it's dealing with end time things, the Lord's second coming. And the judgment and the restoration to follow that, it's dealing with usually highly metaphorical language, but that can be properly interpreted only by the Word of God itself. And thirdly, it's usually communicated or interpreted by an angel. We see that in each of these different locations, and that's what we see here. So, here... He asked the angel, my Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. 
And the man who stood among the myrtle trees. Guess who that is? The man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord, who is the man among the myrtle trees, who stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. We'll break off this part of the version, the, the vision here just to follow and track up to this point. By the way, just to give an overview of the eight visions, the first three, visions one, two, and three, deal with prophecy concerning the restoration of Israel in Jerusalem in the temple. And then visions four and five, right in the middle, will deal with why, how that will take place, and why the regeneration of the nation in the nation is a lampstand in the millennial kingdom. And then visions 6, 7, and 8, the last three, will deal with judgment. So the first three, restoration, the middle two, four, and five, deal with the means, the basis of that restoration, and the last three with the judgment of the end times. I'll show that to you as we get to it, Lord willing. I'll give you kind of an overview. So this first one is moving in that direction. The myrtle tree is known in the Bible as representative of the nation of Israel. Study that out for yourself if you don't want to take my word for it. It's a symbol of modesty and humility. You know, for the, for the world, the great stately oak tree, especially down in South Louisiana, those big oak trees there, or the cedar of Lebanon, massive, glorious tree. It's on their flag, you know. But the myrtle tree, humble Modest. Well, that's the picture of God's people. Humble and modest. And, and the Lord is the man, I believe, that the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, is the man riding on a red horse in verse 8, who is stood among the myrtle trees, among the remnant of the people of Israel who had come back from the captivity. In other words, Zechariah's contemporaries. And then these other horses, the red, sorrel, and white, red being generally judgment, war, death. Sorrel, a mixture of both the red and the white, sort of a speckled kind of a color is what we have in mind there, which would be the the, the means of moving toward the white, which would be the peace. And it was a mingling of war and peace and then finally peace. Well, it's probably a picture of how God brought the people of Israel to the place they were in in Zechariah's day, what we call the Pax Perseica. You've heard of the Pax Romana. The Pax is the Latin word for peace. So the, the Roman peace lasted some 400 years, one of the longest, maybe some say the, the longest time this planet has gone without war in any time in its history. Well, the Pax Perseica was a little shorter. It was about 208 years where the Persian Empire ruled over the, the known world of that day and maintained peace, white being the symbol of that, the white horse, so that they had been brought, the, the Medo-Persian Empire had conquered the Babylonian Empire. In the midst of doing that, there was a lot of war, bloodshed, skirmishes, battles that needed to take place. But then the Persian Empire established their dominance. It was their dominance included northern Africa, the Middle East, the Asian world, all the way up to the modern-day India, the Indus River. And up to modern-day Turkey, that whole region. It's a big area. Now, don't forget, they didn't have cell phones, and they didn't have trains, and they didn't have cars. So imagine trying to maintain peace by horseback and by foot over an, an area, a landmass. I mean, it took how long it took for a message to get from Shushan, the capital, all the way to northern modern-day Turkey. That would take a while. It wouldn't be easy to maintain peace. In other words, these people weren't cavemen. <laughs> they had a very systematic, 
orderly organization of government. The Babylonians did before them under Nebuchadnezzar. God gave them that ability. He tells us that. Nebuchadnezzar gives God credit in Daniel 4. It wasn't him. It was God that worked through him. And God says in Isaiah 45, he did it through Cyrus. The Persians call him Cyrus the Great, the first great ruler of the Persian Empire. And they had these satraps and governors and this whole layered hierarchy. It's interesting. The first two great world empires in this time frame of the times of the Gentiles were from the east. The last two are from the west. And what are we finding today? The great struggle is between the east and the west. The eastern world, the western world, they don't mix. Their government is different. Their their understanding of culture is different. Their religions are different. That's why when we try to impose democracy in, in the eastern world, in Iraq, they don't under, they've never had democracy. They're monarchies. They've had monarchies going back to 3000 B.C. since the flood. And, and it's not working well, is it? I mean, basically they have a monarchy. It's just through their parliamentary government. And it's caused all kinds of problems. They left the Sunnis out, so the Sunnis created ISIS. And, and now we're having to struggle with that. It's an amazing world we're living in today when the president and prime minister of Russia is right there on the northern border of Israel. Don't think Benjamin Netanyahu and the Mossad aren't watching that carefully. He's right over there in Damascus. I remember when we were on the, on the Golan Heights there on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, which is an elevated area. Of course, that's an area the Syrians wanted back. They lost that in the 73 war, the Yom Kippur war. And there, we were there on the road. And, and there isn't, you know, looking to the east. I mean, it's just the Arabian desert. And there aren't trees or anything. You just see almost all the way to Damascus. And that's the road Paul was on when he went to Damascus. And, and there were a bunch of towers and, and antennas and all kinds of things on that mountain, all pointed toward Damascus. And the Israeli guy told us, he said, he said, President Assad doesn't even flush the toilet in Damascus, and we don't know it. We know, we know what, he's, what their discussions are in their government. We know all the intricate details. We listen. And that's why we don't want to lose the Golan. Remember, they were going to give the Golan back. In the 1990s, God didn't permit it. Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated. It's God's land. It's not Yitzhak Rabin's land or Ariel Sharon's land or anybody else's. God's doing a work, beloved. And for those who have the eyes of faith and follow their Bibles, they see it. Others don't see it and they discount it and explain it away by some other irrational means. But God's working his program. (laughs) He's not asleep. And I hope you're included because it's up to you. You may want to stay left out. If you stay left out, you're going to go to a bad place. Time's running out. Don't waste it. So the man who stood among the myrtle trees, he answers. These are the ones who walk to and fro throughout the whole earth. You remember that expression from the book of Job? Oh, good. You do remember in chapters 1 and 2. And who was it referring to there? Satan. Satan, yeah. I went back and looked at that this morning. It's interesting. The Lord never addresses Satan by name. He just says, you. I think that's significant just in itself. And Satan saying, you know, bragging and boasting around. Lucifer, our adversary. That's what Satan means. He's your adversary. If you're a believer, you better know it prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, according to 1 Peter 5, 8. No one to be trifled with by any means. So these are walking through it, and that's why I say we believe that this is how the Lord established the dominance of the Persian Empire. Why did he do that? Because he had favoritism toward the Persians? Because he hated Israel so much that he wanted to elevate the Persians over them? No, no. He tells us right here. Because God wanted to rebuild his temple. And he was going to use the Persians to set up a world peace for 200 years to establish the second temple period. You know how important that is? 
If the second temple isn't built, Jesus Christ can't come. You see, in God's mind, He has a timetable laid out. Now, that is fascinating, isn't it? Because the opponents of Israel up to this point, we saw in Ezra, have ceased the work. Satan looks like, oh, he's going to get his victory here. The work had ceased. God uses prophets. To, you see how God works in human beings and uses those who want to be used by Him for good? And He will use all to praise Him, even the evil, won't He? According to the Word of God. It says in Psalm 10, God hates sin every day. Not the sinner, but the sin. Oh, that you and I would hate sin every day. And we will. We walk with Him and walk in the light as He is in the light. We will increasingly want to separate ourselves from that which is an abhorrence to God. So the angel of the Lord, who stood among the myrtle trees, they answered in verse 11. And then notice verse 12. Here is our Lord. We wouldn't know this from any other prophetic book. Our Lord is interceding now for His people, the remnant of Israel. Then the angel of the Lord answered. Now, this is the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, speaking to the Father. O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah? Of course, He does. He's the author of mercy. What He's asking is, how long will... Your mercy be set aside. It has been for 70 years. How long before you restore them? Now, our Lord doesn't ask questions because He needs information. you agree with me on that? When He, when he asks the various people in the Gospels questions, it isn't because He doesn't know. That's clear. What he, he knows what's in the heart. He tells the Pharisees that. He's drawing them out. And here is a way for us to understand the interaction in the Godhead. And I love this. I'm glad this is in the Bible. How long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you were angry these 70 years? What is one of the primary roles of a priest? To intercede. Our Lord Jesus, as the great priest king, is interceding here. What do we read in Hebrews 7.25 regarding his priestly intercession for us? He lives continuously to do what today? To intercede for whom? For us. Do you need that intercession? No, I do too. Sure glad to have him there. I need it every day. He's actively doing that. And here we see an example of it even in the Old Testament. This is an awesome insight into the Godhead. And the Lord answered. You want to know what God's answer to that is? Here we have it. It fits in with Yahweh remembers. (laughs) He says, The Lord answered the angel who talked to me with good and comforting words. What words? He's going to go on to say in three different ways. So the angel who spoke with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. So you see, the pattern we're seeing in this first vision is we have the vision with a proclamation attached to it. And that's what verses 14 down through verse 17. And then we won't see that in vision 2, in in vision 3, in 4, and 5. We'll see it again in vision 8, though. Vision 8 will end with a proclamation as well. So vision 1 and vision 8 have that in common in terms of their style. The angel says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. Now, I'm not a political Zionist. Today, there are political Zionists and there are biblical Zionists. But I am a biblical Zionist. I'm zealous for Jerusalem with great zeal like the Lord is because He is. And He asks us to pray for Jerusalem, to intercede for Him. Why? Because there is favorite? No, because there are no favorites with God. But this is what God has deemed as His will and purpose. 
And who are you and I to go against that? What is mankind to go against the will and purpose of God? What is Russia to go against the will and purpose of God? What is the United States to boldly go against the purpose of God? What is any nation of the earth among the Gentile nations? God says, I'm zealous for Jerusalem and I'm not going to apologize for it. So we see that he's zealous for Jerusalem, the capital, in verse 14 and 15. We see he's zealous for his house, the temple, in verse 16. And we see he's zealous for the cities, in verse 17, of Judah, which he calls my cities. He put them in the land. The capital is his. You realize in Deuteronomy 11, God says that his eyes are on the city of Jerusalem every day. Day. He doesn't say that about Miami. He doesn't say that about Houston. He doesn't say that about New York or Paris. He says that about Jerusalem. Yet there are people in the world today that want to destroy Jerusalem and wipe the people of Israel off the face of the earth. And boldly are saying that. And now are weaponizing themselves to do it. You realize, but for the grace of God, that hasn't happened already because Israel will retaliate. I've been to the place where their nuclear arsenal is kept and they have a substantial one and they will retaliate. And that is probably what I believe will set up the final peace treaty of Daniel 9.27. I think they will have to use part of their nuclear arsenal. What city it will land on, don't know if it will be Damascus. Some think it will be. Some wonder if it's Tehran. Whatever city it will be, it will be a total annihilation of that city when that atomic bomb hits it. And then the world will be calling out for a peace treaty, won't they? Why? Because they'll be worried about escalation. You know what escalation means? That's an old Cold War term. You millennials probably haven't heard it. We grew up with it. I used to have to hide underneath my seat, my chair in second grade to hide from the Cuban Missile Crisis bombs. Like that chair would have done any good in a nuclear attack. But anyway, we, were, we had to practice that. That chair would have been a vaporized like me. But we see then that we live in these kinds of a day, that, that these things are happening. Oh, to be alert to the times. I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. I am exceedingly angry now, not with... Remember, he was angry those 70 years with Israel because of their resistance to the Word of God and their lack of cooperation with His will for them. But now he's angry with the nations that attack them. He says, I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. I was a little angry, but they helped, but with evil intent. What does he mean? You see, he'll talk about it in in Jeremiah. He'll talk about it in Ezekiel. He'll talk about it in others of the post-exilic books. That when the nations, Babylon, and under Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed Israel, they went way too far. God used them to discipline His people, but they took delight in it and took glee in it and took Delight in hurting and mocking and torturing people way too far. And God says, that I'm not pleased with. And Babylon suffered for it. Jeremiah prophesied the destruction of Babylon. And beloved, it's historical. It happened. We can go over there and see the ruins. They had never, God said it would never be rebuilt. And it hasn't been. Nebuchadnezzar, and I mean, uh, Saddam Hussein, who claimed to be the new Nebuchadnezzar, the neo-Nebuchadnezzar, Tried to do it. What happened to him? Stopped right in his tracks, wasn't he? So God says, I was a little angry, but they helped. And with evil intent, they made it worse. <clears throat> There's a great lesson here, too. We sometimes struggle with this when we see someone who has gotten away from God or someone who is even actively opposed to God when something really bad happens to them, we can struggle in our hearts with taking glee and delight in that and saying, well, I'm glad they finally got it. I wish it had been worse. Have you ever thought that? A fellow Christian, maybe, that gets out of the will of God, suffers the consequences. We say, well, they got what they deserved. Have you ever said that? 
we better stop. God's not pleased with that. He doesn't, he's not pleased when we gloat over that. And he'll bring it, I've seen it, he'll bring it right into our own lives. He has ways of humbling that kind of activity. <clears throat> and that's what he's, I think, addressing here. Secondly, verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with what? Mercy. What was the question the Lord Jesus asked him? When will you return? With, he says, well, I'm returning with mercy, just like you asked. If he's up there tonight saying, Oh, Father, I wish I want you to grant mercy to Thomas Wheeler tonight. I'm going to amen that prayer every time. And if he's asking for you, or for you, or for you, I'm going to amen that prayer too. He's rich in mercy. I need it. You need it. And whenever we think we don't need it, that's when he will bring something in our lives to show us how much we need it. He's a master at that. Don't tempt him. Don't tempt him. So he says, I'm returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it. It's still not finished. God says, it's going to be finished. <laughs> See, here is his omniscience and his omnipotence being displayed. He's, he's prophesying it. It's not finished. The, the Jewish people by whom he's using to, to rebuild it have held off the work. God says, oh, it's going to be finished. And I showed you in Ezra where it was finished. Four years later, God said it would happen, and it happened. That's important when we get to chapters 9 to 11 and 12 to 14. God's going to say certain things are going to happen. In chapter 9 to 11, they've already happened. In chapter 12 to 14, they haven't happened yet. They're still future. But they're going to happen too, just like he said it. And we'll see that, Lord willing, as we work through it. So he says, My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Why is he emphasizing that? Well, he's saying this isn't some sort of imaginary dream. You don't measure, if you had a dream of some city, you don't measure that with a surveying line. A surveying line is measuring something physical, right? Something that has dimensions to it. This pew has certain dimensions, and you can measure it with a measuring line. He's saying, I'm going to take a measuring line to the city of Jerusalem. It's going to physically, actually be rebuilt. And you know what? It was Zechariah's day, Ezra's day, Nehemiah, God used to rebuild the walls. By the time we get to Malachi's day in 430 B.C., the Jerusalem is rebuilt. The second temple is built. It's ready for the Lord Jesus to come. He wouldn't come for another 400 years. The 400 silent years, we call them. The third proclamation, verse 17, again proclaim. So he says, proclaim, proclaim, and again proclaim. Thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. So God's giving a message of hope. He's going to restore them. Not because they're so good. They're struggling. He's had to call them to repentance earlier in chapter 1. They're bragging about their fasting and their ceremonies in chapter 7. And he's saying, yeah, but you did that all for yourself. You didn't do it for me. See, He could see into their hearts. But here the cities of Judah, which are his cities, not just Jerusalem now, the other cities of the land of Judah are his cities. It's his land. It's interesting when you think about the whole discussion in the UN today, the discussions about who owns the land, East Jerusalem being discussed back and forth. Palestinians say it belongs to us. Jews says we want it in the war. <laughs> but whose is it ultimately? It's God's. I can remember when we were walking through the ruins of 
ancient Caesarea, you know, Caesarea on the coast there where Paul shipped out there along the Mediterranean Sea, beautiful area. The, the uh, harbor there built by Herod the Great was an amazing, it, it's not a natural harbor. He created a harbor in a place where it wasn't a natural harbor. But we were walking from the ruins and there were some Jewish people there, local people, that were walking with us. And I turned to this couple and I said, thank you for letting us walk around here and see these ruins in your country. I'm the foreigner here. It's in your country. She said, and I don't think she was a Christian. She said, it's God's country. And all people are welcome. Yeah, I like that. With a smile, too. She said it. It's God's country. They're welcome. We're welcome to come. So that's the first vision. He's prophesying restoration. The second vision I'll cover quickly in, in a few minutes because it's short, beginning in verse 18 down through the end of the chapter. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? I'm glad you asked, Zechariah. And so he answered, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. The horns is a picture of, of armies or people that are obviously on attack, like a horn in an animal is used to attack another animal. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could lift up his head. But the craftsmen are coming to terrify them to cast out the horns of the nations that lifted up the horns against the land of Judah and scatter it. So God permitted four horns to come in, whoever they are. Some think that they may be four generals that were the heads of the various armies that came in. But it doesn't matter. We don't need to. He doesn't identify anymore. We know that it's those. What, he, what does he tell us? They were what God used to scatter them. That was part of the, the discipline that, that Moses even talked about in the cursings and blessings of the law in Deuteronomy 28. That ultimately, if they persisted in rebellion, they would be scattered throughout the nations of the earth. And these horns were what he used to do that. But then look what he says. But there are four craftsmen. What does a craftsman do? Well, he comes to build. And who these are, maybe the Zerubbabel and Joshua and, and Haggai and Zechariah, some suspect that, but we don't need to uh, speculate really on who they are. They could be even Gentile rulers like Cyrus and others that God used to, to help. The key is what the craftsmen did came to rebuild and restore what the horns scattered. You see the whole movement here? The whole movement is reversing the effects of the captivity. The whole movement in the first vision and in the second vision, and as we'll see in the third vision, is that God has a purpose for Israel again. He hasn't given up on them here. This is in Zechariah's day. Now, ultimately, they would be scattered out of the land again in 70 A.D. Well, technically, 70 A.D. is when the Romans took Jerusalem and the temple, they weren't scattered out of the land until 135 A.D. at the Bar Kokhba revolt. That was the second Jewish revolt. The first revolt was in 70 A.D. Went from 67 to 70 A.D. The second revolt was from 132 to 135, the Bar Kokhba revolt. And that's when the Emperor Hadrian actually banished the Jews from the land and named the land Palestina, where we get Palestine from. It goes all the way back to the Emperor Hadrian. Thank you, Hadrian. All the problems we're suffering with today. Yeah. But as we'll see in the final prophecies in chapters 9 through 14, Israel had to come back to the land in unbelief. The full restoration of the people of Israel back to the land won't happen until the end of the tribulation period. But they would, there would be a nucleus of Israel that would come, be allowed to come back into the land prior to that in unbelief. That's the situation we're in now. You know what a miracle it was in 1948 when Israel was reestablished as its own land again after 1813 years, 135 A.D. to 1948? That's never happened. 
in the history of humankind. That's never happened. They were reestablished with their, their same language. It's modern Hebrew instead of ancient Hebrew, but it's Hebrew with the same monetary system, the Shekelim, and, and with the same religious roots and system. The same approach to God, but they haven't received Jesus Christ yet. See, they're in unbelief. And when they came back in 1948, they were a threat to no one. <laughs> the Arabs fought against them in 1948. They fought against them again in 1956. They fought against them again in 1967 in the Six-Day War. They fought against them again in 1973 in the Yom Kippur War. You remember, well, you, you're many of you too young to remember that. You remember the gas lines <laughs> in 1973? I remember having to wait. I finally got my driver's license. I had to wait in a long line just to get gasoline because of the Yom Kippur War. They fought against him again in 1981 and 82 in the Lebanon War. They fought against him again in 1991 when Saddam Hussein sent 39 Scud missiles. You remember that? We saw it on TV. And I talked to one of the generals there in the late 90s there in Israel. And he said, you know what? They, the, the Knesset had already determined if he had sent one more Scud missile, we would have answered with a nuclear bomb in 1991. Why? Because the law says you're not to scourge a Hebrew. You remember? Forty lashes. No more than forty lashes. And the rabbis, to be safe, always said forty less one, thirty-nine lashes. Paul talks about him being scourged with thirty-nine lashes. 39 scuds, the fourth, 40th one. It wasn't God's timing. Aren't you glad? Some of us got saved since 91. See, God's got a plan and a program. It's coming together. Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall and had a great fall, and no one could put him back together again, but, but God can. The newspaper says, God can't fix this. The Bible says, God is fixing it. You want to be a part of that? I hope you are. I can remember the night in November 10th, 1982. Just last month. Celebrated the anniversary. I was sitting there on the floor in my living room in my house. I started listening to Bible, uh, Christian radio and Bible teaching because a friend of mine, not because I was looking for God, not because I thought I was a lost sinner, not because... I wanted to be some sort of special religious person, but because a friend of mine told me I needed to get saved and to listen to Christian radio. I wouldn't listen to her, so she said, listen to Christian radio. And I sat in the dark, Indian style on the floor. That's how we used to listen to rock music when I was a hippie, and, and that's, that's all I knew. And there we were, because I wanted to just focus on what was being said. All the lights were out, were just dark, and just focus on... What was being said? And finally that night, up to that point, I'd never committed a mortal sin. I wasn't a sinner. According to my religion, I was not a sinner. So it was very hard for me to see why I needed to trust Christ as my Savior. Maybe you're like that here tonight. My boy, the Lord gave me a vision that night of clarity. I saw myself. The brother was still speaking on the radio. It was Chuck Swindoll. I got to tell him years later, and we had a big hug and and and. Listening, and, and I saw myself at the head of a slide. You remember those big slides that they used to have that you'd run down on those burlap sacks all the way? Down? I saw myself at the head of this slide, but you know what was at the end of the slide? Fire. The fires of hell. Now, I don't know what the brother was speaking about. I don't think he was speaking about that, but the Holy Spirit gave me an understanding of that, and I knew then that I deserved I knew those slides, it's real hard to go up those slides backwards. They're kind of irreversible. And once you start down that slide, you end up in the place down there. And I was scared to death. Finally, I saw I was a sinner. But I didn't know what to do. Just because someone you're speaking to understands they're a sinner and needs to be saved doesn't mean they're saved. They don't know what to do. Don't, don't put words in their mouth or assume something that isn't true. I didn't know. I was a religious person, but I didn't know. What to do? And thankfully, the brother on the radio told us what to do. He said, now, if you're a sinner here tonight, and I finally said, yes, that's me. 
I'm talking to the radio, you know, but I'm the only one in the room. He, he said, if you're a sinner here tonight, you don't have to go to hell for your sins. Someone has borne that for you. I said, who? I said, who? Who are you talking about? Now, I had a, we had a big crucifix 15 feet tall in the front of the church. I knew what the crucifixion was. I knew we celebrated novenas and we celebrated all kinds of festivals and stuff. I knew what that, but I didn't know him as my Savior. See, he was up there. He was the Savior, but he wasn't my Savior. And after that point, I wasn't wanting to humble myself to admit that I needed a personal Savior. You needed one, baby, but I didn't see. I was religious. But, oh, I didn't want to go to bed that night. I was afraid I'd die in my sleep. And if I died in my sleep, I knew then that I deserved to go there. I deserved to go there. So I was going to stay awake all night. (laughs) Prop my eyes open with toothpicks, whatever. So I wouldn't, wouldn't die in my sleep. So the man says, no, you don't have to do all of that. I mean, he wasn't addressing that. But he's saying, the Lord, he died for you on the cross. He did for you, for your sins. So you can be free from condemnation. You don't have to go there. He did that for you. What do I do? I said to the radio. What do, what do I do? I mean, okay, I understand. What do I do? See, don't assume that someone knows. They don't know that they need to ask God to save them. The Bible says, whosoever calleth on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But an unbeliever doesn't read the Bible. They don't know that. That's Romans 10, 13. And in many other places, too. So he said, call on the Lord. This is important. I'm so glad he went through these steps at the end of his Bible study program. He says, call on the name of the Lord right now and he'll save you. And I could give you almost word for word the prayer I prayed over 30 years ago that night. I'm not going to do it because I don't need to draw attention to myself. It's not any particular prayer. It's a heart that's open to God. I said, Lord, you've been pursuing me. Now I see it. You've been pursuing me for a long time. Later, months later, the Lord put on my heart. This was the last time he was going to knock on my door. Didn't mean I was going to die. But it meant I was going to die without him. I've been knocking on your door for a long time, buddy. I won't bother you anymore. Go ahead. You want to live your life as a sinner? Go ahead. I ain't going to bother you. It's the worst thing that could ever happen. You ever know somebody? I've met people like that. To test the mercy of God and test him and test him and his patience and long-suffering, which he has. But there comes a time and he says, okay, Go. (laughs) Your choice. I'm not going to push it. I'm not going to force you. He doesn't force anybody because he wants people to want to be in heaven with him. Not people that said, well, I'm here because I deserve to be here. And I'm a blessing to you that I'm here, I'm sure. He doesn't want that. You know what? I didn't know the books of the Bible. I didn't know hardly anything in the Bible. Here I thought it was so religious. I had a lot to learn. But I knew I wasn't going to hell anymore that night. I knew I could lay my head on that pillow at full peace. And, and a few years later, I was in an assembly. I didn't know what the assemblies were, and I didn't still know much more about the Bible. But the elder came up. We were going to have, celebrate the Lord's Supper. And he said, well, you know, he explained, as he's supposed to in 1 Corinthians 11, that this is for believers. Oh, I knew I was a believer. He said, oh, yeah, I, I, I can, I'm a believer. I didn't know anything about how they were gathering, but I watched a few of the men, different ones got up, and I gave up. I got up and gave a him. I'm a believer. I can participate in this. <laughs> I did. And I remember sitting there that morning before we started. People were still coming into the building. I'm sitting in that pew. Now, I'm in a church I had never been into. Didn't know a soul there. Didn't know anything about their history. Didn't know if it was a cult or whatever it was. And I had been already... Colts were after me then too. That's a whole other story. But uh, I knew, I remember saying, Lord, I'm finally at home. I'm looking at those elements and I'm finally at home. Of course, my mother said, you were already a Christian. You know, we baptized you. You were confirmed. You went through Holy Communion. I said, Mom, I wasn't any more saved than a doorpost. <laughs> 
but I am now. She later professed to know the Lord. She's in heaven now. Dad has professed to know the Lord. My sister has professed to know the Lord. My two brothers were working on him. They need it. They need him. And they're having some extremities in their lives, too. And that's part of what the Lord will use to reach them, I hope. Beloved, we serve a great Savior. He's talked about right here in Zechariah. I trust our studies will be an encouragement to us. So, Lord, we thank you tonight for what you've shown us. We thank you for your encouragement. Lord, as we bow our heads and we humbly request of you, Lord, if there's anyone here tonight that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior, we ask, Lord, that you would show it to them as only you can do. You say in John 6:44, no one comes into me unless the Father first draws him. Or her. Maybe you're drawing someone. Maybe the Father's drawing someone to you, Lord Jesus, right now, tonight. I hope so. I don't want anyone to go to that bad place. And all of us deserve to go there. Lord Jesus, what can we say? There aren't enough words to express our praise and adoration and, and love for you. Because you first loved us. And you didn't just write a poem up in the sky somewhere. You demonstrated that love. And while we were yet sinners, you died on that cruel cross for us. But only those who are saved or only those who receive that gift of salvation, who call upon you, ask you, humbly desire to be saved, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would do that work and be exalted tonight. Be with us as we travel home. Lord, it's a solemn thing to consider eternity and where we'll spend it. Help us, Lord, to be serious and yet joyful at the same time. We thank you, O Lord. Be with us as we part, as we ask in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.